you're not already turned there, I invite you to turn to the book of Romans as we are beginning now our series in Romans. We started briefly last week looking at a couple of thoughts. We're going to try to finish, are you ready, verse 1? Because um, there's a few things that we need to set in order as we prepare ourselves for this study. Uh, I would like you to stand as I read for you Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Again, our text will be found in verse 1, but this is Paul's introduction, and so we'll read it in its entirety, and to be reminded that this is the Word of God, this is the Spirit of God speaking to our hearts, and so be blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. We come again to this opening verse of the book of Romans, this letter of Paul to those believers in Rome of course, you're all familiar with its location, right smack dab in the middle of Italy today. Paul wrote this letter while he was ministering in the city of Corinth, some 750 miles southeast of Rome. Last time we discovered some of the reasons why Paul set out to write this letter, and I'd like to remind you of those very quickly. First, this letter is biographical. Paul is desiring to introduce himself to a group of believers that do not yet know him. And so he's trying to introduce himself. Second, the letter is theological in that Paul spends much of his time explaining to these believers what are the most wondrous of doctrines, what the Bible teaches concerning the depth and power of sin, what the Bible teaches concerning the righteousness of God. What the Bible teaches the gospel of God is all about. What the Bible teaches about justification by faith alone. Sanctification, that process whereby God increasingly makes us like Christ. Of glorification, where God is going to ultimately bring us into full conformity with Jesus. To think Jesus' thoughts, to be able to communicate the way Jesus would communicate. He spends time speaking of the place of ethnic Israel and God's divine plan. And there's so much more. So it's a theological treatise. Third, this letter is practical. As Paul sets out in this letter to actually inform these believers how they are to interact with one another in the context of the church. Do you think that we ever need some help understanding how we are to interact with one another? We all bring in what we think, what we have experienced in the past, and Paul wants to say, here are the very practical things you are to do as you gather together. 
The letter is also pastoral in that Paul is shepherding these believers. He wants to guide them because they are walking through some tumultuous times, and he wants to shepherd them, keep them safe from the hostile things in this world and from the wolves that would seek to devour them. And finally, this letter is missional, as we find that Paul informs these believers that he desires to preach the gospel where the gospel has never been preached before. And where was that at the time? A place called Spain. And he wanted to get to Spain, and he wanted them to know his plan so that they could pray for him, and they could also help him be a resource for him on his journey. Let me also remind you that the theme of this letter, ultimately what Paul seeks to communicate is nothing short of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to God. This is what God says is the gospel. Now, Obviously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those Gospels tell us, according to God, what the Gospel is. But those were from those also human perspectives. And here we find, in a sense, God telling humanity what is the Gospel. Paul sets before us everything a person needs to know concerning the Gospel. Since simply, who is God? What is sin? What is man? Who is Jesus Christ? And then ultimately, how will you respond to these things? The letter of Romans is simply jam-packed with so much wondrous truth it ought not to surprise us that it stands as the Magna Carta or as the manifesto of the Christian faith. All of this begins with a very simple yet profound introduction or opening salutation that we find in verse 1, and it runs all the way through verse 7. Of all of Paul's introductions, of all of his letters, this is by far the longest. It forms one sentence in the Greek. And in fact, we haven't even in our study, in our first two points, gotten to the verb yet that Paul uses. And we'll get there today, so you'll all be impressed with that. But that's about as far as we'll get. We'll see that it's, uh, again, one long sentence in the Greek, and I would say to you that read and understood properly, you can almost grasp the excitement of Paul. I want to write a letter to you, and I'm going to explain to you all these wonderful truths, but he can't even, can't even say that little. He has to begin to expand on it. I want to talk to you about the son who is a descendant of David according to the flesh. I want to talk to you about the, the son of God who was raised with power by the spirit of holiness and he's beginning already to, to get this excitement going concerning the glorious gospel according to God. Now last week we didn't make it far considering just the first half of verse 1. Verse 1 introduces us to the author of this letter, a man by the name of Paul. We read, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. While some may read this verse and note that there are certainly three things that Paul tells us about himself, he says, Paul, and then he says, What? I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm an apostle, a called apostle, and I am set apart for the gospel. I did not want us to miss, however, what appears to be. Paul setting the tone for this letter by the use of his Roman name, Paul, rather than Saul. So there are four things Paul communicates to his readers here in this verse. We've already considered two of them. Allow me to quickly review the first two. 
He begins with his self-effacing name. He wants them to understand, even by the name he chooses, that he is humbling himself. Remember that Paul is also called Saul, according to Acts 13. Saul is his Hebrew name, while Paul is a Roman name. And what strikes us, as we noted last week, is that the name Paul means what? Little one. The little one. And so rather than giving himself some lofty title, rather than standing upon his Hebrew name, of course, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Paul was, right? Rather than standing on that, Paul begins by choosing to use his name that means little one. Here is his humility. And I do think that there's a lesson for us. If you want this application, you're going to get it anyway. If we want to effectively proclaim the gospel, it begins always from a position of humility. When we come before other people and we try to set ourselves up or puff ourselves up or, or consider ourselves holier than thou or whatever term that you might want to use, we will not effectively communicate the gospel. We need to, as Paul will in this letter, recognize that apart from the grace of Christ, apart from his mercy, we are nothing, and we have nothing to offer anyone. I'm reminded of the, the little tune, of course, from Acts chapter 4, where Peter says, silver and gold, I have none. All I have is this one thing. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, stand up and walk that's all we have to offer is Christ and so Paul wants to know Christ he says that to the Philippians to know Christ and and Paul wants these believers to so know Christ and be humble before him that we will have an effective evangelism we recognize then that Paul the little one stands in contrast to Jesus Christ who is the great one even at the end of his life, with all of his accomplishments, with all of his accolades, and we trace them, we go through the book of Acts, we are overwhelmed with this man, Paul. He's, there's, there's no one like Paul except the one that's greater than Paul, Jesus Christ. And even with all that he has accomplished, all of his great labors for the gospel, when Paul prepares himself to leave this world, he does not say, look at all the things that I have done. Look at all the places that I have been. Look at all the churches that are now called St. Paul's Cathedral. He doesn't say anything of the sort. Do you know how he saw himself at the end of his life? Do you know the testimony of Paul when he's getting ready to depart this world? Well, it is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, and you are quite familiar with it, but you may not always realize this was at the end of his life. He says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Je Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, immortal, eternal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice that Paul states at the end of his life what he knows to be true about himself. He is not simply a sinner. He is the chief 
of sinners. He states what he knows about Christ, that Christ is the mercy giver who demonstrated his perfect patience in saving a sinner like Paul so that he might become an example that if Paul can be saved, anyone can be saved. And then he brings himself to this final doxology in which God alone receives all the praise, all the glory, all the honor for sovereignly saving him. Do we see ourselves with such humility? In a phrase, Paul belittles himself in order to exalt Christ. That is what we find Paul doing in the opening verse here of Romans. If Paul, beloved, is the little one, what does that make you? What does that make me? How then ought we each exalt Christ in our words and our deeds? Well, that's the self-effacing name Paul uses And it corresponds to our next phrase, the second point that we looked at last week, his service. He refers to himself first as a bondservant of Christ. It is Paul doubling down. He says, Paul, in case you're not understanding that I'm referring to myself, he says, as little one, let me use another term that will bring me all the way down. I am, he says, a slave of Christ Jesus. We said that this was to answer the question, not who is Paul, but whose is Paul? Who does Paul belong to? Does he belong to himself? Is he a self-made man? Is he this, this great and trained rabbi that should be honored and respected and his will should be considered? No, he says, I am a bondservant. I am literally a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus. As a slave, Christ Jesus is the master. As a slave, it was not Paul's will, but Christ's will to be done. As the songwriter penned and we sang last week, I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. That was Paul. Paul sees every action that he takes, every word that he would speak as being directed by the heart of God or the heart of Christ and the will of God. As a slave of Christ, Paul sought, did he not, as we see his life, to live every moment for the pleasure of the one who purchased him? Do you seek to live for the pleasure of the one who purchased you? We made note of the freedom that comes as we realize that the only person that we ultimately need to to, uh, uh, please is Christ. When I preach, I might be done at the end, and, and, and I do. I, I appreciate when people say, that was a great point, Pastor. This spoke to me, and, and all of that. And I'm not asking you to stop. You can do that a little more. But. <laughs> but when I lay down my head on Sunday night, the question that I have to answer is not, did 75 people tell me how great the sermon was? It is, Lord Jesus, were you honored and you blessed with the sermon that was delivered today? And that should be true for you when you go to work or when you do whatever activity it is that at the end of the day, you can say that the one who is pleased by every word I said, every action I performed, every duty resolved, that Jesus Christ was pleased. So long as what we say and do is truly honoring to Christ, then We need not second-guess ourselves. We need not worry 
whether 75 people give us accolades or not. Paul belonged to Christ Jesus, the Christ Jesus, the the Messiah, the promised one of God, the Christ whose name is Jesus, and belonging to Jesus brought him, and I say to you, it would bring to all who are slaves of Christ the greatest freedom that we can ever imagine. Well, that's review, and so now let us consider the next two points of what Paul has said about himself, beginning with now his status. His status. He refers to himself this way, called as an apostle. I don't want you to be confused. This is not a verb here, all right? What Paul tells us about his status, you may notice that if you are reading with me in the NASB in your Bible, that the word as is in italics. That's because it's an added word designed to bring clarity to the English reading. However, the Greek literally reads called an apostle, or probably a better translation would be a called apostle. There's no verb, just two descriptions. Paul is the called apostle. The one called is also an apostle. The point is, is that this is not a title or office that Paul sought for himself. He's continuing to diminish himself. If he had simply said in this moment that he was an apostle, it might be that he's now trying to bring himself back out of this this little uh, uh, well that he dug himself of humility and beginning to prop himself up. No, he says, I am a called one. I am also an apostle. This is reminding us that Paul did not seek this office for himself. It was one granted to him, one he was called to. He was appointed as a called apostle. Well, the word apostle speaks to us. Some of us are familiar with the word, but it speaks of one who is commissioned, one who is sent out, dispatched to represent another. Uh, Again, this does not one does not self-appoint himself to such a position he must be called by one who is greater than himself this is something important to paul as he addresses this in his other letters in galatians chapter 1 verse 1 this is the earliest of all of paul's letters this is the very first letter we know paul wrote it was written around 49 AD just before that very famous jerusalem council in acts chapter 15 And notice that from the very beginning, he wants everyone to know he did not choose this title for himself. He says, Paul, an apostle. Now, if we stop right there, we might think, oh, well, he's claiming all authority by himself. But what does he say next? Not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. His authority is not in himself. His authority is on the Lord Jesus Christ. All that he is going to say as an apostle is not of his own interpretation, of his own will and mindset. He wants to speak of Christ and Christ alone, and he communicates that in this phrase. Again, at the end of his life, I'd have you notice that Paul continues to stress that his calling as an apostle was not of his own making. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, we read this. Paul says to Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Note this, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. And what does he say next? Not according to our works. 
not based on our talents and our skills and the things that we could do for him. He did this calling according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What does he say? For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. All of it flows from Christ. What do you have that was not first given to you? I don't care how blessed you are, and and if you happen to be an unbeliever in here or listening online, I don't care how blessed you are, you did not get that because of yourself alone. God's grace, he allows people blessings. It's according to him. Paul often begins his letters by stating that he is an apostle, but with it always specifies that he never writes of a, as a private individual. He never writes as a gifted teacher. I, the gifted teacher, Paul, am writing to you, so you better listen to me because I'm so gifted. He always writes as a called apostle whose word bears not his authority, but the authority of vested in him by God. Why should you memorize the word of God? Why should you have a Bible with you as often as possible and share from the scriptures who God is, who Jesus is? Because the authority is not in us. The authority is in the word of God. Let the word of God speak. That's what Paul desires. Let the word of God speak. This is an important thing for us to grasp because any reading of the book of Romans that ignores this claim that Paul is a called apostle, not under his own authority, but the authority of Christ, if you do not capture that, then you will fail to come to grips with the ultimate purpose of this letter. Because you'll think, hey, it's just a man-made thing. And what is the purpose of this letter? Can I tell you in these words? Paul wants us to be astounded by the gospel. He wants his readers to be so refreshed by what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ according to God. And so an apostle is one who's authorized delegated or appointed as a messenger of Christ to carry out a very specific task or mission. The office of apostle is a special office in the New Testament. It is established by Christ himself. There, are in the, there is in the scripture uh, at least two requirements to be an apostle. First, you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ with your own eyes. And second, you had to be directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to preach and teach the gospel so the church may be built. Well, Paul meets both of these criteria. In Acts chapter 9, Paul sees, before he's blinded, he sees the resurrected Christ. And he's commissioned by Christ to do what? Preach the gospel. And since, by the way, there, are, there is no one who can meet such criteria in our day, there can be and there are no present-day apostles in the church. Contrary to the claims of some charismatic groups and the Mormons, there are no apostles today. Paul and the other apostles understood their ministries 
were special and that they would not continue. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles. It's a, a passing office being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul, along with the other apostles and prophets, served as the foundation of the church. And then we find Paul doing what? He goes throughout the, the cities, and what does he do? Does he appoint apostles in every church? What does he do? He appoints elders in every church to carry on the work of seeing the church grow and be all that it is supposed to be. We see that beginning in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where on his missionary journey, it doesn't say, again, he went and appointed apostles. It says he appointed elders for them in every church so that the elders would oversee local congregation And the, after the apostles left the scene. We see this motivation of Paul again in, in Titus chapter 1. Uh, Paul instructs Titus again to appoint elders, and he says they are to be men who are holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that's Christ's apostolic teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So then, Paul, the little one, who is seeking to point to Christ, the great one, is a slave of Jesus Christ, wholly bound to the service of Christ, having been commissioned to serve as one of Christ's apostles. And that brings us to this final point that we'll spend some time to consider what I've entitled his separation. As he says, he is set apart for the gospel of God. I don't know that there could be any more sweet phrase than to be able to say that about your own life. That one of the first things that Paul desires to communicate about himself is that he's the little one, he's dependent upon Christ, he serves Christ, and in whatever capacity Christ appoints him to, and that ultimately his life has been set apart for the gospel. This final self-description offers us what Paul understood to be his purpose in life, a purpose that you and I might, uh, are to share. There are two things that I would have us consider here, and the first is this, that Paul was a marked man. Paul was a marked man. Now, to say that someone is a marked man is usually not a good thing. To be a marked man usually would mean that you are a specific target to receive some kind of harm or hostility. Well, Paul was a marked man. And I say this because he said it so he said so himself. The phrase set apart here literally means to be marked off, to set away from or apart from a boundary. It is singling out of one thing from among others to isolate it. It is defined as to mark off from others. It can be defined as to separate or to sever from something else. There's, is this going to be this one thing? It's going to be used for this one purpose, and everything else will be set aside. My daughter made a special dinner for uh, us this past Monday night, and while she was preparing it, and I never understand this. Okay, I'm just telling you, I'm not a cook. I, if I have ingredients, just use the ingredients. I mean, that's why they're there. But my, my daughter took some eggs, and she separated the yolks from the whites, 
and she set the whites aside and she used the yolks for this particular recipe and she, uh, I mean, it tasted wonderful so I can't complain, but I'm like, what are you going to do with the, the whites? She was going to toss them out and said, unless, unless you want them for your raccoons. And so I, I cooked them for my raccoons. I, any way I can get my raccoons in a sermon, it's a good deal, right? Okay. <laughs> she set them apart. She isolated them. That's the idea here behind this word set apart. The King, New King James actually translates it this way, separated for the gospel. Paul is separated for the gospel of God. The Christian Standard Version put it, puts it this way, singled out for God's good news. I just want to remind you that one of my favorite phrases of Paul is 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. So I want to imitate Christ. I want to be singled out for the good news of God. The phrase set apart here is this is our verb. This is the verb that we have. So we have Paul, you know, is the subject at this moment. And he says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Now, it is a perfect passive verb. Y'all know what that means right just move on a perfect passive verb why is that important well being a passive verb it tells us that the action of him being as this marked man the action of him being separated for the gospel is something that happened to him he didn't do this himself no one chooses to say hey i think that i'll separate myself for the gospel no god says if you are mine i've separated you i did it to you. I did this for you. Paul did not set himself apart. Being a, now that's the passive aspect. Being a perfect verb means that this act of being set apart that happened to him, it happened to him in the past, and he will now continue to be a marked man in the present, and as long as he's walking this earth, he's going to be a marked man. There'll never be a time when God says, I, uh, I'm no longer going to use you for the gospel. What a blessed truth. If you are walking with Christ, there's never a time God says, you know what, you've used up everything that you're useful for. I'm just going to toss you aside now. No, I separated you for the gospel. And what did Paul tell the Philippians? He who began this good work in you, this gospel work in you, he will bring it to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. What a blessed thought. Paul is recognizing, he's communicating that what God began in him he will be carried to its completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I was a marked man, I am a marked man, and I will always be a marked man. They had asked me how to translate this passage. I didn't get a lot of phone calls. I would have translated, translated it this way, having been set apart for the gospel of God. That's the way I would translate it. And then I read the Legacy Standard Bible. And guess how they translated it? Having been set apart for the gospel. Made me feel pretty good that I was in such company. Why is that important? Why would I prefer the translation having been set apart for the gospel? Well, most often in the New Testament, when you read the phrase have been or having been or have been in the NASB, I, I can't speak for all the other translations, but when you see have been, it speaks of this perfect passive tense. 
So you almost always know, not every time because it didn't do it here, but you almost always know, you'll always know it's a perfect passive when you see have been, and it speaks of something that has happened in the past, it's true in the present, and will continue on into the future. And so I always like to give my favorite example of this, and it's Ephesians 2.8. How many of you happen to know Ephesians 2.8? Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved. Perfect passive. As a passive, it means you didn't save yourself. It's something that happened to you. As the perfect, it says you were saved in the past, you're still saved in the present, and you will be saved unto eternity. Isn't that wonderful? That's awesome. And Paul's using that idea now to convey this idea that he is separated from the past, separated from uh, since the past, the present, into the future for what one thing? The gospel of God. But there's more to it than that. It appears that Paul is making use of some wordplay that we simply miss in our English translations. The Greek word for set apart here, meaning marked off or separated, is the Greek word that was used to translate the Hebrew word for Pharisee. What on earth does that have to do with us? You know what the word Pharisee means? separated the word pharisee means the separated ones it means to separate and the pharisees considered themselves what separate from all others we might say they considered themselves holier than thou remember that paul was a pharisee the conservative yet legalistic wing of israel's religious parties and if paul is in fact indulging in a wordplay and it seems he is he seems to be indicating that although he was a Pharisee, he is now a different kind of Pharisee. He seems to be telling us that, uh, that he's a set-apart one. Previously, he had been a Pharisee separated from the gospel, and now he is a slave and apostle separated to the gospel or for the gospel. What a blessing it is to know that one has been separated from sin, that one has separated from this world system, that one can be separated from, uh, from all that which is not of God and embrace and live the gospel. But just when and how was Paul set apart from the gospel? He says he's separated for the gospel. And this is fascinating to me. Paul had been separated from the world, separated from Judaism, separated from his previous career path as a Pharisee of Pharisees, Yet coming, up, coming to Christ, he counted all such things as what? As, as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. He was set apart for a different purpose. And I'd like to answer this question, when did this happen? When did it happen that Paul was separated for the gospel work? Well, there are three notable separations for the gospel, uh, for the gospel that Paul mentions. Paul was set apart for the gospel first by the sovereignty of God. Oh, let's say yeah. sovereignty of God. In Galatians 1, 15 and 16, we come to learn that Paul was, he says this, that he was set apart. Here's our word. He was set apart from his mother's womb. But when God, verse 15, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might what? I might preach him, preach the gospel among the Gentiles. Paul was called to preach 
but God sovereignly chose to set him apart from birth for the task. Now, does that present a problem to any of you? Paul took the long way to get there, didn't he? At one point in his life, it would have appeared that he was able to resist God's call, resist God's uh, setting him apart. Before becoming a delegate, an apostle sent out on a mission of preaching Christ, Paul had been what? The enemy of Christ. Paul loathed Christ. Paul rejoiced when Stephen was slain before him. Paul then waged war, a personal war, seeking to destroy Christians and households. But God said, I have a plan for you, Paul, and I've planned it since your mother's womb. I've marked you out. It had not completely unfolded until Acts 9. But let me tell you, what God ordains will come to pass no matter how long it takes. So Paul was set apart by the sovereignty of God, chosen beforehand, but he's also uh, set apart by the salvation that comes from Christ, the salvation that comes from Christ. At an appointed time, Paul was shown the mercy of God so that he might become, one of my favorite terms to use, a monument of grace. Paul was so far gone, it would seem, so removed from Christ, so separated from anything that would be conceivable as a Christian. And God graciously opened his eyes to behold Christ. God had allowed Paul to plunge himself into rebellion and to become a persecutor of the church. Why? Why did God do that? Why would God separate him for the purpose of preaching the gospel in his mother's womb, but then allow him some 30 or 40 years, uh, the last 10 or 20, being so antagonistic to the things of God? Because that, my friends, would magnify the grace of God when he was saved. There's no one beyond the reach of the grace of God as found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of this again in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. We've read it. In a this is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of what God can do in any heart. God had allowed Paul to be the foremost of sinners so that when he was saved, he would be an encouragement to others for whom God would do the same thing. And God's grace has been doing this very thing over and over. When we look at the Apostle Paul, we see a total reversal in his life pursuits, do we not? And some of you have that same testimony. You were going one direction, hell-bent. Christ got a hold of you, and you began to go completely in the other direction.
why does God now bring Paul? We remember the, the story Paul's writing into Damascus. What's he doing when he's writing into Damascus? What's his goal? I'm going to arrest and persecute the Christians. And Christ steps in. Christ meets him on the road. He intervenes. He interrupts Paul's life. But he interrupts him with grace. And he interrupts him by saving him and bringing him into his own kingdom. And for what does God set him apart? He is set apart for the gospel of God. He set him apart to preach the gospel that we are about to embark on in Romans. In Acts 15, the Lord told Ananias, a disciple of Christ, the one who would have to first encounter this converted Paul, Paul who was breathing threats, Paul who was persecuting, Paul who was punishing, Paul who was putting to death Christians. <laughs> and the Lord taps Ananias and said, you need to go to Paul. What would you do? You know what Ananias would have to say? I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. What does the Lord tell Ananias to say or to, to, uh, to do concerning Saul or Paul? He said this, go, go to Paul, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine, meaning he's set apart, he's been separated, in order to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. All of a sudden, Ananias has a pretty important message. Paul, you've been set apart to preach to Gentiles and to kings and to the sons of Israel. And so we find Paul separated for the gospel by the sovereignty of God. We understand this. We're, we're saved by God's gracious choice. He was set apart from in his mother's womb, separated for the gospel by being saved to Christ. And finally, we see that he was set apart for the gospel, uh, for the service of Christ, for the service of Christ. Well, we've alluded to this in Acts 9, Paul specific, uh, uh, Paul, uh, specific service to Christ is found not until Acts 13, verse 2, where the Holy Spirit says to, to the leaders of, a, of the church in Antioch, Syria, Listen to what the Spirit says. Set apart, there's our term, set apart for me, Paul, Barnabas, and Saul for the work which I have called them. Do you see that separated for the work of what? Preaching the gospel to those who have never heard. And he would begin to do this on the very first missionary journey, which was right on the heels of this call of the Holy Spirit. So then Paul was a marked off man, separated for a purpose. And while we've already noted it, we've already stated it, what is it that Paul is marked off for? What is it that would motivate him to, upon coming to faith in Christ? That's our second point here. Paul not only was a marked man, he was a motivated man, motivated by the gospel of God. That is what motivated him to that which he was set apart. And what a loaded statement this is, the gospel of God. We could preach on this for the rest of our days, and we would not exhaust the phrase, the gospel of God. But before we delve into what it means, let us note that the gospel that Paul proclaims is at the very heart and soul of the letter. 
here in verse 1, Paul begins with what? Paul set apart for the gospel of God. Now, I'd like you to look with me at the closing doxology. It's right up there. It's Acts 16, 25. Paul's ending his letter, and he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. Beloved, the gospel of God had become so integrated into Paul's life that he does not only refer to it as the gospel of God, he says, it's my gospel. He, he bookends the entire book, this entire letter uh, with this, this phrase, the gospel of God and my gospel. We'll spend much time looking at pondering and applying the truth of the gospel. What we need to know is that this is not the gospel according to Paul in the sense that this is Paul's made-up gospel. This is not the good news of Paul. While it is his in the sense that he practices it and he proclaims it, it is not good news contrived by him or any of the other apostles. It is, as he begins here, the gospel of God. We don't get to say it's my gospel till we understand it is the gospel belonging to, coming from God. The good news, this gospel, the message from God is not to be altered. It is not to be adulterated. It is not to be diminished. It is not to be watered down. Paul was separated to or for the sake of the gospel, the full gospel of God. This is the specific purpose of his separation. Paul was separated from everything else in his life in order to serve God by proclaiming the gospel. Now, by referring to this as the gospel of God, we are informed that God the Father is the author of this history-altering, life-transforming good news. We are to recognize that God is the architect, that God is the designer. Oh, what an amazing thought. I've been saddened to read multitudes of articles recently about how our experts have actually duped us with regard to science and mandates and such. Why do I share all of that? They tried to architect something that would fit for their accomplished purposes and goals, and then it's revealed that it's not what they made it look to be. But that's not what our God does. Our God sets before us life and death so that you can clearly say, I would want to choose life or I'm okay with my death. We recognize that God has designed something called this good news, the gospel. It's from God, the God from whom we deserve nothing. You do not deserve his kindness. You do not deserve the benefits of the sacrifice that he gave on the cross. We deserve only his wrath, and Paul will go to great lengths here in chapter 1 to delineate that. He'll end with such a, a word, a phrase that's so familiar to us that I think it loses all of its punch. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, you're doomed. But this God has good news. And Paul starts with the good news. I've been separated, he says, for good news. This is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But let me spend just a couple of moments here on answering the question, what is the gospel of God? What do we mean by this? And I leave you with three considerations. First, the connotation of the gospel. It is literally good news. The word euangelon in the Greek comes from two compound words, uh, eu meaning good and angelon meaning message. It literally is a good message. There's nothing, it's, we would probably like to say, it's the best message. There's nothing gooder. That's the connotation. Just by saying the word gospel, you're like, oh, this is good. This is wonderful. Tell me more. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of love. Well, then we see the concept of the gospel. The use of this word was to excite the interest of the hearers. The word euangelon was actually used by the heralds to give some kind of good news from some person or decree or dignitary that was giving some good news for the, for the rest of the people. We see the word used in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint to speak of the footmen who announced the good news of freedom for Israel from Babylonian captivity. Israel was going to be held captive for 70 years. And then the footmen would come, according to Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings, what? Good news. Who announces peace and brings Good news of happiness who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. That was the message. Can you imagine? You've been in captivity. You've been separated from your homeland. And now the footmen come with this announcement from what? Dignitary? God himself. The Jewish exiles traveled over mountains as they made their way back to Jerusalem. And the heralds joyfully went before the people announcing this exciting news. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, Paul actually uses that very terminology. He says, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. He takes that and he says there's even better news than being released from captivity in Babylon. It's being released from the captivity of our sin. The gospel that Paul proclaims in this book is every believer's delight and it is far more glorious than any earthly good news we may ever receive. 
The gospel we preach is God's emancipation proclamation. It is a decree of freedom, not simply from our physical enemies and oppression, as was is the case of the Hebrew exiles, brought, but from our spiritual enemies and spiritual oppression that comes to us through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the concept. Now let's look at the content. Let me offer you the content. What's at the very core of the gospel? And there are just four things that I would add here. Here we go. The gospel is a message about God. When you think about the gospel, it is a message about God. God is holy. God is love. God is righteous. God is just. God must punish sin. God is a God who demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is a message about the heart of God. Do you see that? Second, the gospel is a message about man. What is man? Man is a lost, ruined, rebellious sinner against God. He is one who has fallen short of God's glory and thus is under the very wrath and just judgment of God. That's not necessarily good news, but you can't have good news unless you have the bad news. And so next, the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sinner's substitute. It is the good news that the Lord Jesus had willingly paid the penalty of our sin at the cross. Jesus was then buried and rose again on the third day as the Father's validation of his completed and accepted work on our behalf. That's Romans 1.4. And finally, the gospel is about two demands for all who would receive its benefits. What are the two demands? Sincere repentance toward God, that you recognize that you're a sinner. You agree with God. You confess your sin. And then you come with sincere faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. You believe he paid the price for your sin. You believe that that price is sufficient and that by receiving it by faith, you also receive newness of life by his spirit. Paul, the little one, had been designated as a called apostle, sent out on a mission appointed by Christ, separated from everything else to proclaim the gospel of God. And this is good news, the message of salvation. This is why Paul would say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have more to consider about the nature of this gospel, but we'll save it for the weeks to come. Let me close with this one brief application. Would you constantly bear in mind that God is not only the author of the gospel, but he is the revealer of the gospel. Therefore, you are accountable to him to respond to it correctly. And let me get rid of a notion that we sometimes embrace in our evangelical Christianity. When I say that you ought to respond to the gospel, we tend to think in terms of, well, he's calling now for the unbelieving to believe. No, my friends, while that is true, the gospel needs to be responded to by believers as well. What is it that you have been holding on to that is not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You belong to the Lord. But where have you taken it upon yourself 
to determine what is good for you, what is right for you, what you ought to do, and to snub what God has said, no, I have shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly, to do what's right, to love mercy and to be compassionate, and never to puff yourself up, but to walk humbly with your God. Do we not see that that's what Paul's been doing? We need to recognize then that we're responsible to respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. What sins or sin needs to be confessed, repented of, and by faith eliminated from your life so that you might fully be, truly be the slave of Christ? For some of you, it may be your very first step. You've never walked with Christ. You've sat here for weeks or months or years, and you have not walked with Christ. Today would be the day that you say, God, help me repent and to by faith respond to what Christ has done. Will you do that today by faith and receive Christ as the substitute for your sin, the Savior of your soul? And the Lord of your life. For you believers, we come to the Lord's table. What is it that has separated you from a full and right relationship with your God? We're to confess those things. Repent of those things. Respond to the gospel. And it all begins, I believe, with imitating Paul to see how little we are because of our sin so that we can see how great Christ is because he's the son of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the words of challenge that even as Paul introduces himself to this church at Rome, he reminds not only them but us of the transforming work of the gospel the impact that Christ made on his life. And I pray that we would desire something extraordinarily equal to that, that we would desire to see the life-transforming changes that come by walking with Christ. May we be little. May we decrease so that Christ may be seen as the great one that we would see him for who he is in his increasing glory. Father God, as we come now to the Lord's table, we pray that our hearts would be made ready, that we would delight in such a time as this to partake, with, uh, to partake of these elements with one another as you've commanded us to do. But Lord, to do so in a very careful, deliberate, and, and sober-minded way that we would first confess our sins and know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we want to come before you with clean hands, but we know we can't clean our hands ourselves. So may we come before you by faith. Say, Lord, here's my dirt. Cleanse me. Search me, O God. Try me and know my mind. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me now in the everlasting way. Cleanse my heart, O God. Make it ever true. So, Father, we pray that we might come rightly, but then also to come with rejoicing. Father, help us to rejoice that Christ has provided everything necessary 
so that we might be made right with you. So we pray, Father God, that as we enter into this aspect of our worship, you would be honored and you would be glorified by right thinking in our heads, right prayers flowing through our minds and our hearts, and that we would see this as, again, those, that opportunity by which we commit ourselves to knowing the gospel so that we might proclaim it. Separate us, we pray, for the gospel of God.